Welcome to Quanta Magazine's Science Podcast. Come for the science, stay for the stories. For news, interviews, videos, graphics, and more, visit quantamagazine.org. This week on the podcast, bizarre quantum bonds connect distinct moments in time, suggesting that quantum links, not space-time, constitute the fundamental structure of the universe. Then, in our second segment, so-called supercoils change the behavior of DNA, opening a new role for topology in the study of life. First, Quantum Weirdness, Now a Matter of Time, by George Musser. In November, construction workers at MIT came across a time capsule 942 years too soon. Buried in 1957 and intended for 2957, the capsule was a glass cylinder filled with inert gas to preserve its contents. It was even laced with carbon-14 so that future researchers could confirm the year of burial, the way they would date a fossil. MIT administrators plan to repair, reseal, and rebury it, but is it possible to make it absolutely certain that a message to the future won't be read before its time? Quantum physics offers a way. In 2012, Jay Olson and Timothy Ralph, both physicists at the University of Queensland in Australia, laid out a procedure to encrypt data so that it can be decrypted only at a specific moment in the future. Their scheme exploits quantum entanglement, a phenomenon in which particles or points in a field, such as the electromagnetic field, shed their separate identities and assume a shared existence, their properties becoming correlated with one another's. Normally, physicists think of these correlations as spanning space, linking far-flung locations in a phenomenon that Albert Einstein famously described as spooky action at a distance. But a growing body of research is investigating how these correlations can span time as well. What happens now can be correlated with what happens later in ways that elude a simple mechanistic explanation. In effect, you can have spooky action at a delay. These correlations seriously mess with our intuitions about time and space. Not only can two events be correlated, linking the earlier one to the later one, but two events can become correlated such that it becomes impossible to say which is earlier and which is later. Each of these events is the cause of the other, as if each were the first to occur. Even a single observer can encounter this causal ambiguity so it's distinct from the temporal reversals that can happen when two observers move at different velocities, as described in Einstein's special theory of relativity. The time capsule idea is only one demonstration of the potential power of these temporal correlations. They might also boost the speed of quantum computers and strengthen quantum cryptography. But perhaps most important, researchers hope that the work will open up a new way to unify quantum theory with Einstein's general theory of relativity, which describes the structure of space-time. The world we experience in daily life, in which events occur in an order determined by their location in space and time, 
is just a subset of the possibilities that quantum physics allows. If you have space-time, you have a well-defined causal order, said Chaslov Bruckner, a physicist at the University of Vienna who studies quantum information. But if you don't have a well-defined causal order, he said, as is the case in experiments he has proposed, then you don't have space-time. Some physicists take this as evidence for a profoundly non-intuitive worldview, in which quantum correlations are more fundamental than space-time, and space-time itself is somehow built up from correlations among events, in what might be called quantum relationalism. The argument updates Gottfried Leibniz and Ernst Mach's idea that space-time might not be a God-given backdrop to the world, but instead might derive from the material contents of the universe. To understand entanglement in time, it helps to first understand entanglement in space, as the two are closely related. In the spatial version of a classic entanglement experiment, Two particles, such as photons, are prepared in a shared quantum state, then sent flying in different directions. An observer, Alice, measures the polarization of one photon, and her partner, Bob, measures the other. Alice might measure polarization along the horizontal axis, while Bob looks along a diagonal. Or she might choose the vertical angle, and he might measure an oblique one. The permutations are endless. The outcomes of these measurements will match, and what's weird is that they match even when Alice and Bob vary their choice of measurement, as though Alice's particle knew what happened to Bob's, and vice versa. This is true even when nothing connects the particles, no force, wave, or carrier pigeon. The correlation appears to violate locality, the rule that states that effects have causes, and chains of cause and effect must be unbroken in space and time. In the temporal case, though, the mystery is subtler, involving just a single polarized photon. Alice measures it, and then Bob re-measures it. Distance in space is replaced by an interval of time. The probability of their seeing the same outcome varies with the angle between the polarizers. In fact, it varies in just the same way as in the spatial case. On one level, this does not seem to be strange. Of course, what we do first affects what happens next. Of course, a particle can communicate with its future self. The strangeness comes through an experiment conceived by Robert Speckens, a physicist who studies the foundations of quantum mechanics at the Perimeter Institute for Theoretical Physics in Waterloo, Canada. Speckens and his colleagues carried out the experiment in 2009. Alice prepares a photon in one of four possible ways. Classically, we could think of these four ways as two bits of information. Bob then measures the particle in one of two possible ways. If he chooses to measure the particle in the first way, he obtains Alice's first bit of information. If he chooses the second, he obtains her second bit. Technically, he does not get either bit with certainty, just with a high degree of probability. The obvious explanation for this result would be if the photon stores both bits and releases one based on Bob's choice. But if that were the case, you'd expect Bob to be able to obtain information about both bits, to measure both of them or at least some characteristic of both, such as whether they are the same or different. But he can't, 
No experiment, even in principle, can get at both bits, a restriction known as the Holevo bound. Quantum systems seem to have more memory, but you can't actually access it, said Costantino Budroni, a physicist at the University of Siegen in Germany. The photon really does seem to hold just one bit, and it is as if Bob's choice of measurement retroactively decides which it is. Perhaps that really is what happens, but this is tantamount to time travel on an oddly limited basis involving the ability to determine the nature of the bit, but denying any glimpse of the future. Another example of temporal entanglement comes from a team led by Stephen Brierley, a mathematical physicist at Cambridge. In a paper last year, Brierley and his collaborators explored the bizarre intersection of entanglement, information, and time. If Alice and Bob choose from two polarizer orientations, the correlations they see are readily explained by a particle carrying a single bit. But if they choose among eight possible directions and they measure and re-measure the particle 16 times, they see correlations that a single bit of memory can't explain. What we have proven rigorously is that if you propagate in time the number of bits that corresponds to this whole level bound, then you definitely cannot explain what quantum mechanics predicts said Thomas Paderick, a physicist at Nanyang Technological University in Singapore and one of Brierley's co-authors. In short, what Alice does to the particle at the beginning of the experiment is correlated with what Bob sees at the end in a way that's too strong to be easily explained. You might call this supermemory, except that the category of memory doesn't seem to capture what's going on. What exactly is it about quantum physics that goes beyond classical physics to endow particles with this super-memory? Researchers have differing opinions. Some say that the key is that quantum measurements inevitably disturb a particle. A disturbance, by definition, is something that affects later measurements. In this case, the disturbance leads to the predicted correlation. In 2009, Michael Goggin a physicist who was then at the University of Queensland and his colleagues did an experiment to get at this issue. They used the trick of spatially entangling a particle with another of its kind and measuring that stand-in particle rather than the original. The measurement of the stand-in still disrupts the original particle because the two are entangled, but researchers can control the amount that the originals disrupted by varying the degree of entanglement. The trade-off is that the experimenter's knowledge of the original becomes less reliable, but the researchers compensate by testing multiple pairs of particles and aggregating the results in a special way. Goggin and his team reduced the disruption to the point where the original particle was hardly disturbed at all. Measurements at different times were still closely correlated. In fact, they were even more closely correlated than when the measurements disturbed the particles the most. So the question of a particle's supermemory remains a mystery. For now, if you ask why quantum particles produce the strong temporal correlations, physicists basically will answer, because. Things get more interesting still. Offering the potential for quantum time capsules and other fun stuff, 
when we move to quantum field theory, a more advanced version of quantum mechanics that describes the electromagnetic field and other fields of nature. A field is a highly entangled system. Different parts of it are mutually correlated. A random fluctuation of the field in one place will be matched by a random fluctuation in another. Parts here refers both to the regions of space and to spans of time. Even a perfect vacuum, which is defined as the absence of particles, will still have quantum fields. And these fields are always vibrating. Space looks empty because the vibrations cancel each other out. And to do this, they must be entangled. The cancellation requires the full set of vibrations. A subset won't necessarily cancel out. But a subset is all you ever see. If an idealized detector just sits in a vacuum, it will not detect particles. However, any practical detector has a limited range. The field will appear imbalanced to it and it will detect particles in a vacuum, clicking away like a Geiger counter in a uranium mine. In 1976, Bill Unruh, a theoretical physicist at the University of British Columbia, showed that the detection rate goes up if the detector is accelerating, since the detector loses sensitivity to the regions of space it is moving away from. Accelerate it very strongly and it will click like mad, and the particles it sees will be entangled with particles that remain beyond its view. In 2011, Olson and Ralph showed that much the same thing happens if the detector can be made to accelerate through time. They described a detector that is sensitive to photons of a single frequency at any one time. The detector sweeps through frequencies like a police radio scanner, moving from lower to higher frequencies, or the other way around. If it sweeps at a quickening pace, it will scan right off the end of the radio dial and cease to function altogether. Because the detector works for only a limited period of time, it lacks sensitivity to the full range of field vibrations, creating the same imbalance that Unruh predicted. Only now, the particles it picks up will be entangled with particles in a hidden region of time, namely the future. Olson and Ralph suggest constructing the detector from a loop of superconducting material. Tuned to pick up near-infrared light and completing a scan in a few femtoseconds, 10 to 15 seconds, the loop would see the vacuum glowing like a gas at room temperature. No feasible detector accelerating through space could achieve that, so Olson and Ralph's experiment would be an important test of quantum field theory. It could also vindicate Stephen Hawking's idea about black hole evaporation, which involved the same basic physics. If you build two such detectors, one that accelerates and one that decelerates at the same rate, then the particles seen by one detector will be correlated with the particles seen by the other. The first detector might pick up a string of stray particles at random intervals. Minutes or years later, the second detector will pick up another string of stray particles at the same intervals, a spooky reoccurrence of events. If you just look at them individually, then they're randomly clicking. But if you get a click in one, then you know that there's going to be a click in the other one if you look at a particular time, Ralph said. These temporal correlations are the ingredients for that quantum time capsule. 
The original idea for such a contraption goes back to James Franson, a physicist at the University of Maryland. Franson used space-like correlations. Olson and Ralph say temporal correlations may make it easier. You write your message, encode each bit in a photon, and use one of your special detectors to measure those photons, along with the background field, thus effectively encrypting your bits. You then store the outcome in the capsule and bury it. At the designated future time, your descendants measure the field with the paired detector. The two outcomes together will reconstitute the original information. The state is disembodied for the time between the two measurements, but is encoded somehow in these correlations in the vacuum, Ralph said. Because your descendants must wait for the second detector to be triggered, there's no way to unscramble the message before its time. The same basic procedure would let you generate entangled particles for use in computation and cryptography. You could do quantum key distribution without actually sending any quantum signal, Ralph said. The idea is that you just use the correlations that are already there in the vacuum. These temporal correlations are also challenging physicists' assumptions about the nature of space-time. Whenever two events are correlated and it's not a fluke, there are two explanations. One event causes the other, or some third factor causes both. A background assumption to this logic is that events occur in a given order, dictated by their locations in space and time. Since quantum correlations, certainly the spatial kind, possibly the temporal, are too strong to be explained using one of these two explanations, physicists are revisiting their assumptions. We cannot really explain these correlations, said Amin Baulamer, a physicist at the University of Italian Switzerland in Lugano, Switzerland. There's no mechanism for how these correlations appear, so they don't really fit into our notion of space-time. Building on an idea by Lucian Hardy, a theoretical physicist at the Perimeter Institute, Bruckner and his colleagues have studied how events might be related to one another, without presupposing the existence of space-time. If the setup of one event depends on the outcome of another, you deduce that it occurs later. If the events are completely independent, they must occur far apart in space and time. Such an approach puts spatial and temporal correlations on an equal footing, and it also allows for correlations that are neither spatial nor temporal, meaning that the experiments don't all fit together consistently and there's no way to situate them within space and time. Bruckner's group devised a strange thought experiment that illustrates the idea. Alice and Bob each toss a coin. Each person writes the result of his or her own toss on a piece of paper, along with a guess for the other person's outcome. Each person also sends the paper to the other with this information. They do this a number of times and see how well they do. Normally, the rules of the game are set up so that Alice and Bob do this in a certain sequence. Suppose Alice is first. She can only guess at Bob's outcome, which has yet to occur, but she can send her own result to Bob. Alice's guess as to Bob's flip will be right 50% of the time, but he will always get hers right. In the next round, Bob goes first, and the roles are reversed. Overall, the success rate will be 75%. But if you don't presume they do this in a certain sequence, and if they replace the sheet of paper with a quantum particle, 
they can succeed 85% of the time. If you try to situate this experiment within space and time, you'll be forced to conclude that it involves a limited degree of time travel so that the person who goes second can communicate his or her result backward in time to the one who goes first. The time patrol will be relieved that no logical paradoxes can arise. No event can become its own cause. Bruckner and his colleagues at Vienna have performed a real-world experiment that is similar to this. In the experiment, Alice and Bob manipulations were carried out by two optical filters. The researchers beamed a stream of photons at a partially silvered mirror, so that half the photons took one path and half another. It was impossible to tell without measuring which path each individual photon went down. In a sense, it took both paths at once. On the first path, the photons passed through Alice's filter first, followed by Bob's. On the second path, the photons navigated them in reverse order. The experiment took quantum indeterminacy to a whole new level. Not only did the particles not possess definite properties in advance of measurement, the operations performed on them were not even conducted in a definite sequence. On a practical level, the experiment opens up new possibilities for quantum computers. The filters corresponding to Alice and Bob represent two different mathematical operations and the apparatus was able to ascertain in a single step whether the order of those operations matters, whether A followed by B is the same as B followed by A. Normally, you'd need two steps to do that, so the procedure is a significant speed-up. Quantum computers are sometimes described as performing a series of operations on all possible data at once, but they might also be able to perform all possible operations at once. Now imagine taking this experiment a step further. In Bruckner's original experiment, the path of each individual photon is placed into a superposition. The photon goes down a quantum combination of the Alice first path and the Bob first path. There is no definite answer to the question, which filter did the photon go through first, until a measurement is carried out and the ambiguity is resolved. If instead of a photon, a gravitating object could be put into such a temporal superposition, the apparatus would put space-time itself into a superposition. In such a case, the sequence of Alice and Bob would remain ambiguous. Cause and effect would blur together, and you would be unable to give a step-by-step -step account of what happened. Only when these indeterminate causal relations between events are pruned away, so that nature realizes only some of the possibilities available to it. Do space and time become meaningful? Quantum correlations come first, space-time later. Exactly how does space-time emerge out of the quantum world? Bruckner said he is still unsure. As with the time capsule, the answer will come only when the time is right. Second, How Strange Twists in DNA Orchestrate Life by Emily Singer DNA is probably best known for its iconic shape, the double helix that James Watson and Francis Crick first described more than 60 years ago. But the molecule rarely takes that form in living cells. Instead, double helix DNA is further wrapped into complex shapes that can play a profound role in how it interacts with other molecules. DNA is way more active in its own regulation than we thought, said Lynn Ziedrich, 
a biophysicist at Baylor College of Medicine and one of the researchers leading the study of so-called supercoiled DNA. It's not a passive molecule waiting to be latched onto by proteins. Ziedrich's newest findings, published in Nature Communications in October 2015, capture the dynamic nature of supercoiled DNA and point to what could be a new solution to one of DNA's long-standing puzzles. The letters of the genetic code, known as bases, lie hidden within the helix. So how does the molecular machinery that reads that code and replicates DNA get access? Specialized proteins can unzip small segments of the molecule when it's replicated and when it's converted into RNA, a process known as transcription. But Ziedrich's work illustrates how DNA opens on its own. Simply twisting DNA can expose internal bases to the outside without the aid of any proteins. Additional work by David Levins, a biologist at the National Cancer Institute, has shown that transcription itself contorts DNA in living human cells, tightening some parts of the coil and loosening it in others. That stress triggers changes in shape, most notably opening up the helix to be read. The research hints at an unstudied language of DNA topology that could direct a host of cellular processes. It's intriguing that DNA behaves this way, that topology matters in living organisms, said Craig Benham, a mathematical biologist at UC Davis. I think that was a surprise to many biologists. To get a sense for supercoiled DNA, imagine twisting a piece of string. Let the string go, and it unwinds. Twist it enough, and it folds back on itself. The degree of twist puts stress on the string, which governs the shape it takes. DNA behaves in a similar fashion. Like the string, it prefers to be in its most relaxed state, the aconic double helix, but DNA rarely gets to relax. It's subject to a continual onslaught of molecules that bind it, the enzymes that untangle, unwind, and then replicate DNA, the molecules that mark which genes are active and which are silent, and the proteins that pack the lengthy molecule into a manageable size. All of these molecules contort DNA into new shapes, blocking it from the repose of the simple double helix. These interactions represent the inner workings of the cell, the basis of all life. How the cell decides to activate a certain gene, for example, involves a complex assembly of molecules in the right place at the right time. Protein-DNA interactions also present prime targets for drugs as well as insights into disease. Imagine a drug that could block activation of a cancer-linked gene without interfering with other genes. Unfortunately, these interactions are very difficult to study because biological molecules morph shape so easily. A mechanic would have a hard time fixing a car if the parts constantly mutated. To capture the complex structure of these nanoscale interactions, scientists typically crystallize the molecules, freezing their shape for the camera. The vast majority of these studies use short strands of relaxed DNA, the standard double helix form, because they're easy to work with and cheap to make. But that may not capture the true picture. Relaxed DNA often behaves differently than that found in the cell, contorted around all manner of proteins. Ziedrich and her collaborators have spent the last two decades making small pieces of supercoiled DNA, whose behavior better mimics DNA in the living cell. 
Essentially, they take a short strand of DNA and twist it once, twice, three times, or more, either with or against the coil. Then they glue the ends together. The end result is a tiny circle of DNA coiled in one direction or another. Cedric, her collaborator, and Baylor colleague Jonathan Fogg and others have shown that these twisted coils dance, shimmying through a microscopic ballet. Each molecule can assume a variety of shapes, from simple circles to figure eights, rackets, handcuffs, needles, and rods. Linear DNA is stiff and inflexible, said DeWitt Sumners, a mathematician at Florida State University in Tallahassee. But when you get it bent into a small circle, the duplex opens up and adopts a large number of interesting shapes. This is completely unexpected. The newest study from Zedrick's lab provides the clearest picture yet of these tiny rings. The researchers captured microscopic images of individual circlets in a variety of diverse shapes. Pairing the images with sophisticated computational models created by collaborator Sarah Harris, a biologist at the University of Leeds, they were able to predict the precise movements of each molecule. Though scientists already knew bits and pieces of how supercoiled DNA functions, the combination of microscopy and modeling in the new paper helps to create a more precise picture. For a large part of the biological community, seeing is believing, said Stephen Levine, a biophysicist and bioengineer at the University of Texas, Dallas, who was not involved in the study. You can show math models, but unless you have some convincing structural data, it's hard to get people to appreciate what's going on. Researchers have known since the 1970s that twisting DNA opposite the direction of the helix, called negative supercoiling, can split open the two strands. This split serves a dual purpose. It both relieves pent-up molecular stress and exposes the code hidden within the helix, granting access to the molecular machines that replicate DNA and make RNA. But soon after that work was done, scientists developed new techniques to read the sequence of the base letters in the genome, launching the genetic sequencing revolution. Sequencing opened up a lot of possibilities, but it also sidetracked everyone so that structural questions were suddenly very passé, said Benham. For three decades, most scientists assumed that supercoiling probably wasn't very important in complex cells which have special enzymes that snip and untangle knotted DNA. These enzymes help prevent the buildup of troublesome stress. But they aren't 100% effective. In 2008, Levins, the National Cancer Institute biologist, led a team that detected supercoils in human cells, reigniting interest in DNA's higher-order structure. Levins and collaborators found that transcription twists DNA, leaving a trail of undercoiled, or negatively supercoiled, DNA in its wake. Moreover, they discovered that the DNA sequence itself affects how the molecule responds to supercoiling. For example, the researchers identified a specific sequence of DNA that's prone to opening when stressed, like a weak spot in an old inner tube. The segment acts as a sort of chemical cruise control as the amount of supercoil rises and falls, it slows or speeds the pace at which molecular machinery reads DNA. Levin says these structural changes also help DNA communicate along its length. 
just as pressing an inner tube makes a weak spot bulge, changes in the shape of one part of the DNA molecule might trigger stress elsewhere along its length, which in turn might help regulate genes. The findings align with Harris's models, which show that supercoiling can split the two strands of the helix, rotating the DNA bases that normally lie inside the helix to the outside, a phenomenon known as base flipping. Other simulations show that twisting a bit more flips out additional bases, creating a bubble of inside-out DNA. Ziedrich theorizes these bubbles might provide trigger points for replication or gene expression. This challenges the standard view in which proteins latch onto DNA and launch these events. Who's driving the bus in cellular metabolism, said Sumners. It's a very dynamic process. DNA and proteins each influences how the other acts and reacts. Scientists hope the results will inspire new questions and a renewed consideration of DNA's shape and flexibility. These experiments are going to stimulate a lot of thinking and rethinking, especially in the physics community, said Wilma Olson, a biophysical chemist at Rutgers University in New Jersey. Mathematicians and physicists have long been intrigued by supercoiled DNA and the role that DNA topology plays in the cell. According to Sumners, the field is ripe for exploitation with new mathematical approaches. Mother Nature clearly has a message here, Sumners said. The question is how to interpret it. You're listening to Quantum Magazine's Science Podcast with music by Poddington Bear. I'm Cynthia Banu. For news, interviews, graphics, and more, visit quantummagazine.org.